I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. Um, long Nows and Big Hears. You know, photograph the Earth from space the next 10,000 years. There are things between next week and 10,000 years from now. <laughs> there are things from the view outside in the street to uh, the view of the planet from a great distance. Each one of those graded distances in time and in space has its own uniqueness, its own message, its own peculiarities. So the long view, whether in space or in, in time, scales. And nobody has done a better job of finding out what you can do with the imagery of Earth in this scaling mode than our speaker tonight, <clears throat> Benjamin Grant. Uh, we're going to start, at his request, with a video uh, from an old friend, which I think you'll enjoy, and then Ben will come up here. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines, every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere. 
to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Good evening, everyone. My name is Benjamin Grant, and it's an honor to be here. A thank you to Carl Sagan for setting the stage, and a thank you to Stuart for the introduction. It truly is an honor. So tonight, I'm excited to share my story with you all and reflect on our Earth, our civilization, and all of us from a much bigger perspective. Now, how did this become my story to share? For that, Let's go back five years ago to 2013. Then I was a graduate of college. I was working in New York City, working at a consulting firm. Uh, I couldn't figure out why everyone would take their lunch, go back to their cubicle, and talk to nobody else. That was weird to me. Uh, and I wanted to change that. So it was my instinct at the time to start a space club. Yeah, space club. Um, it was as bizarre uh, then as it might seem now, but I did it, and here's why I did it. At that time in 2013, there were some particularly enticing news stories. SpaceX was launching and landing their grasshopper rockets. I had never seen anything like this before. It was like something out of science fiction. Over the skies of Chelyabinsk, Russia, a meteorite entered the sky and released... 33 times more energy than one of the atomic bombs dropped on Japan during World War II. You'll see it there. In the Voyager 1 spacecraft, the same one that took the picture of the pale blue dot that we heard about in the introduction, crossed the heliopause, meaning that it left our galaxy and entered into interstellar space. That was very profound for me to hear. So I was learning about these stories and sharing them on a bi-weekly basis at Space Club. Soon enough, about a quarter of the firm I was at was coming to Space Club, so it was going very well. And I had put myself out there as the space guy, right? It was a little weird, but I was the space guy. Uh, and one day I got an email from a friend at work. She said, I know you love outer space. I just saw this film. I think you should check it out. And I want to share a few minutes of that movie with you now. Golly, I remember going through launch, which is an overwhelming experience.
The engines cut off. I felt myself floating out of the seat. I floated over to the window, looked out, and we were coming up over the coast of Africa. And that's when it hit me. Uh, I'm in space. And, you know, I just got incredibly excited because it's something I had dreamed about since I was six years old. I think you start out with this idea of what it's going to be like. And then when you do finally look at the Earth for the first time, you're overwhelmed by how much more beautiful it really is when you see it for real. It's just like it's this dynamic, alive place that you see glowing all the time. It was truly incredible to be up there um, doing what I always wanted to do my whole life, and then to kind of glance back at our planet and uh, see that view was just tremendous. I can only describe what I've seen. You know, looking down at the Earth and you see that, that line that separates day into night slowly moving across the planet. Thunderstorms on the horizon casting these long shadows as the sun sets. And then watching the Earth come alive and you see the lights from the cities and the towns. The events you see from space, like flying over thunderstorms, Looking at them from the top were spectacular, like a fireworks show going on, and you're looking at it from the very top. You know, shooting stars going below us, or, or you know, dancing curtains of auroras. It's just um, very hard to describe all the you know the colors, the beauty, the the motion. I'm glad that worked so you guys could see what I saw in 2013. Uh, that was the film Overview. It was 19 minutes long, and I was glued to my screen for the entirety of it. And it would forever change my life. Before I tell you why and how, I want to give a little historical context to explain how this came to be, how we have humans and cameras in outer space giving us this perspective. So for that story, we have to go back to 1957. On October 4th, 1957, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, an emptied out intercontinental ballistic missile that created the world's first artificial satellite. Now, this caused everyone in the United States a year later to freak out and form the National Aeronautics and Space Administration that we all know now as NASA, because we did not want to be behind. Within three years, both the Soviets and the Americans had uh, their first man in space. The Soviets launched Yuri Gagarin on April 12th, uh, beating the United States by just a few weeks when Alan Shepard went on May 5th. Uh, the, the next year, uh, President Kennedy took the space race to a whole new level um, when he gave the United States a new target, a new destination, in a famous speech that he would deliver on September 12th at Rice University in Houston, Texas, when he famously declared this. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. So with that speech, 
We were going to go to the moon, and we were going to go to the moon by the end of the decade. However, it wouldn't take that long for someone to have a profound realization that we needed this perspective. And that would occur right here in San Francisco, in North Beach, on the third story of an apartment building, when a 27-year-old by the name of Stuart Brand from his elevated position thought he could see the skyline curving on itself and wrote down in his journal that you can see on the left, why haven't we seen a photograph of the entire Earth yet? He'd been watching Buckminster Fuller lectures where he was thinking the belief that the Earth is flat is the source of all of our misbehavior. So he started this campaign <laughs> where he created these buttons that you see on the right uh, that he would send to senators and congressmen and every single person at NASA urging them to give us this perspective. So thank you, Stuart. And because of this campaign the following year, uh, the ATS-3 geostationary weather satellite created this photo, the first full-frame color photo of our entire planet. This photo would then appear on the cover of the first Whole Earth Catalog in fall of the following year. Oh yeah, I might break the record for most applause tonight. Let's go. But something profound would happen in 1968. Uh, the Apollo missions were still well underway, um, and Apollo 8 was leaving from Cape Canaveral, Florida, to be the first mission in which humans would leave low Earth orbit, the first mission in which people would travel with a destination in mind. They were going to the moon. They weren't going to land on the moon, but they were going to scout out future locations where we could land. And on Christmas Eve 1968, something magical happened. The astronauts had made it to the moon, they were on their fourth orbit around, and astronaut Bill Anders looked out the window and he saw something incredible. He frantically asked his crewmates where their camera was, he grabbed the Hasselblad, he pointed it towards the window, he pressed the shutter and took this picture, Earthrise. Now, this is one of the most well-known, widely distributed photographs of all time. And many historians suggest that this picture, this moment, sparked the modern environmental movement as we know it. Now, that's a pretty big claim, but what is there evidence to suggest that this actually happened? Uh, first and foremost, the Environmental Protection Agency was founded uh, the following year, which is an organization until uh, this administration that was uh, <laughs> intended to do just that, to protect the environment. Um, which led to many pieces of uh, fundamental legislation, such as the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, uh, DDT, which was a pesticide being used on crops, was banned. It was killing so many birds. And the Endangered Species Act was passed. The following year, Earth Day was created. If you look at the first slogan of Earth Day, it was a day for looking beyond tomorrow. That's long-term thinking. They were looking for a future worth living. And this all came from that one photograph. Organizations that are now some of the leaders in the environmental movement were founded that next year with the NRDC or Greenpeace 
Or one of my favorite examples, Doctors Without Borders. One of my heroes, Neil deGrasse Tyson, likes to remark on that name, Doctors Without Borders, and says, where do you even get that phrase from? No one thought of that phrase before that picture was taken. So I believe that those historians are correct, that this picture in this moment did indeed spark the environmental movement that is so necessary in our history. Uh, moving forward to 1972, uh, Apollo 17, which would be the last of the Apollo missions, the last time we would go to the moon, uh, the astronauts captured this photo that you may recognize, the blue marble, as it's known. Um, this is the last time that we were able, able to capture a photo like this. Uh, in the years following Apollo 17, it was very clear that the Russians weren't going to go to the moon, uh, that the space race was pretty much over, and NASA's budget decreased significantly as a result of that. So it wouldn't be until the year 2015 that we had our next blue marble when this picture, uh, captured by the Discover satellite uh, from a million miles away, um, was created just a couple years ago. So that is basically the history of seeing the Earth like that. In recent years, space travel for astronauts has been kind of uh, contained to the shuttle missions that went to and from Earth to the International Space Station. This is the shuttle seen over the Bahamas, or the International Space Station, which was operational from the year 2000 to present, uh, seen here. So that is how we got here. Right? And now we've had the opportunity to look back at all of these astronauts, like the ones we heard in the video, to see and understand what they were feeling. And a study that was released in 2016 by the University of Pennsylvania Psychology Department examined all of the testimonies from astronauts to see what they were feeling. And their analysis uncovered three common feelings. First, there was a greater appreciation for Earth's beauty, the astronauts had an increased sense of connection to all other living beings on the planet, and an unexpected, often overwhelming sense of emotion. This feeling, this profound awakening, is commonly called the overview effect, where the movie gets its name from and where this talk gets its name from. Even the first two astronauts who had this experience, Yuri Gagarin and Alan Shepard, came back saying these things. Gagarin was saying how beautiful the planet was, how we needed to protect and preserve it. We can't destroy it. He saw that it was not infinite. Alan Shepard said the same thing, not infinite, it's fragile, it's vulnerable, right? This is an awakening from the very first moments that we were able to see this. And for me, it comes down to this. This is the psychology underlying all of this awakening, all this profound understanding. It's awe. This is what we're here to talk about tonight, awe. What is awe? Awe occurs when you are exposed to something perceptually vast, like the entire planet. Um, seeing something immense in size, number, scope, complexity. But what happens when you experience awe? Your brain needs to develop new mental models to understand this new world you've been exposed to, a new frame of reference, right? It's basically coping with what it's seen. So, over the course of human history, there have been 561 astronauts who have seen the world like this. Now, I found this figure, you may dispute it, but it's approximated that there have been roughly 108 billion people ever. So that means one out of every 200 million people have seen the Earth from outer space. And to end this section, I just want to leave you with one question. What if that number were bigger? So that comes back to me. 
2013. I'm still a consultant. I'm still working at this firm in New York City, still doing Space Club on a bi-weekly basis. Um, and I'm walking around New York City looking at my phone using Google Maps like we all do. Uh, and I think, this is a space story. This is only possible because of GPS. I kind of know what GPS is. I'm going to explain how satellites work. Um, I had just seen the movie Overview, and it was very much on my mind. I'm obsessed with this idea of the overview effect. So I'm preparing this talk on satellites. I figure I'll pull in some imagery as well from Apple Maps. I just got this new computer. These images look cool. So I open Apple Maps, and as someone who's obsessed with the overview effect, I type the word Earth into the search bar. Yeah, Earth. Um, thinking it would zoom out and show me the blue marble like I just showed a few slides ago. Um, so I type in Earth. I press enter, thinking it will zoom out, but instead it zoomed in. And this is what I saw. This is Earth, Texas. <laughs> Earth, Texas is a small town in northeast Texas with 1,048 people. I had never heard of it before, but this is what I saw. These perfect circles, these Pac-Men, these pie charts, whatever image it conjures for you. I thought it was one of the most awe-inspiring, beautiful things I'd ever seen. Um, I took my computer, I went back to my apartment, and I showed my roommates, and I said, what the hell is this? What, what am I seeing here? Why is this the way it looks? What, what is going on? Um, eventually, we found out these circles are uh, pivot irrigation fields, which occur when you have a line of sprinklers with a central motor, and they go in a perfect circle to irrigate the crops evenly. But that afternoon, this picture set me and my friends off on this adventure to figure out what are the places and moments and landscapes that are these powerful stories that we can show. So I want to share a first, uh, few examples of some of those places. I had a friend there who was from Europe, and he said, you should check out the port of Rotterdam. Uh, it's one of the largest shipping facilities in the world, and this is what we found. This systematic organization of shipping containers on a massive scale. Unexpected beauty. I had a friend who had just gone on vacation in Arizona. He said, there's an airplane graveyard there you should check out. Uh, this boneyard contains 4,400 retired military aircraft that are kept in the desert uh, so they do not corrode as quickly. My one friend was working in energy, and he said, you should check out a solar concentrator. I had never heard of a solar concentrator before, but this is one that we found in Seville, Spain. And lastly, my best friend's girlfriend was working for an NGO at the time, and she said, you should check out the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya. In this image, I think if there's any image uh, of all of the ones that I found in the beginning that helped me realize the potential of this project, the potential of one of these images to tell a powerful story, this is one. It's a beautiful image, the red color of the Kenyan soil, uh, the beautiful organization and grid on the left that we're used to in our cities catches your attention, but when you learn and you read the caption here that you're seeing 260,000 displaced Somali refugees, you have a new understanding of what's going on there. Uh, so that image and the other ones I showed kind of set me off on this adventure to find these places. A few weeks later, I created Daily Overview. Um, the name right there, uh, coming from the overview effect, thinking about uh, how can I inspire this on a regular basis, I would post one of these pictures every day, and that was the mission. That's how I set off doing it. Um, so a lot has happened over the last five years, uh, and to think about 
tonight how I wanted to explain what's happened. Um, I was inspired by a talk that Stuart gave at TED in 2004 when he said, for many years, I've been trying to figure out how to hack civilization so that we can get long-term thinking to be automatic and common instead of difficult and rare. So at Daily Overview, for five years, I've been trying to figure out how to hack civilization to inspire the overview effect on a regular basis. Now, what are the hacks that I have used to do so? The first one was to figure out how to get these images of the Earth from outer space. If we go back to that first one of Earth, Texas, that was on Apple Maps, and I did a little bit of digging when this started all happening to figure out who owns this. Is it Google? Is it Apple? Is it somebody else? And I went into the information page and buried deep in the copyrights, it said, satellite imagery data, copyright Digital Globe. I had never heard of Digital Globe before, but I did a quick Google search, found someone to call, called them up and said, I'm an artist in New York, and I'd love to use your imagery to create new perspectives for people. And they were like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, I showed them some more stuff, they did a background check on me, and eventually we formed a partnership agreement where I have access to the Digital Globe constellation of five satellites. Now, each of these satellites is about the size of an ambulance. Um, they are equipped with cameras so powerful that if you could put one of these satellites on the Hollywood sign in Los Angeles, you could take a picture of a beach ball on the Golden Gate Bridge in full resolution. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, and it enables you to take pictures like this. Now, take a second to get your bearings, um, but you are here. Um, this is from 900 miles away above the Pacific Ocean of San Francisco. If we zoom out, you can see the entirety of the Bay Area in one photograph. Uh, having access to their imagery also means I have access to their full archive and library, which means you can tell stories about uh, changes in time. If you have one of these images, you have a moment in time. If you have two overviews, you have a change in time. So here are a few examples. Uh, these are the tulip fields in Lise, Netherlands, which bloom in April of every year. So if you take this first photograph in March and you compare it to one captured one month later, you're able to watch the flowers bloom in this magnificent cascade of color. On a less positive note, uh, this is a patch of desert in Mafrak, Jordan, uh, captured in 2011, uh, the same year that the crisis and uh, civil war in Syria started. If you compare uh, this land to the same land captured just this past year in 2017, you're able to see the construction of the Zatari refugee camp. Uh, this is now home to 83,000 displaced refugees. So these are very powerful stories that we're able to capture and tell. The second hack. Now that we've got the images, how do you make them look really good? What's the point in doing this if no one's going to see them? How can we get people's attention? So what you see on Google Earth is often limited to the resolution of whatever device you're using to look at it, be it a phone or computer. So you're limited to 1,500, 2,000 pixels. What you see on Daily Overview in our book, on our website, uh, is us taking the time to extract all of the high-resolution info from the satellite, stitch it together over a number of tiles. What you're looking at here is Barcelona, so you can see Google Earth on the left, us on the right, and this enables us to do it on a larger scale as well. We can keep building out the tiles to continue to give you that high-resolution. And we're not just going on the satellites and looking for one image and saying, wow, that's cool. There's a lot of thought that goes into the composition of each image. 
So when I started the project, I had just graduated from college, and my parents had given me a DSLR camera as a graduation present. And I would go for these long walks on the weekend out in New York City, and the imagery that appealed to me the most, the sites that appealed to me the most, were these architectural landscapes, just symmetry and lines and looking up and looking for something vast. Um, so those were the photos I, were taking, I was taking. Uh, I was also doing a lot of painting at the time. I don't think any of my paintings are particularly remarkable, but in the process of doing them, I learned about ideas of composition and color and putting something together. So when I look at an overview now, uh, and what I'm about to show you, I think about abstract expressionist painters when I do it. My favorite painters, the people who inspire awe on me when I go to SFMOMA. Uh, so a couple examples. When you look at a cattle feedlot, as seen here on left in Texas, it might look a lot like a Piet Mondrian grid. Or Ipanema Beach in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, resembles a Barnett Newman strip painting. This image of deforestation in Bolivia uh, matches the color blocking scheme of an Ellsworth Kelly. And last but not least, Lake Mead in the United States looks a lot like a Clifford Still painting. Now, Clifford Still was a painter who was trying to depict the American West in an abstract expressionist form, and I wish I could bring him back to life and show him that and say, you were doing a good job. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. The third hack. Uh, on the cover of the Whole Earth, Atalog, Whole Earth Catalog, it says, Access to Tools. And I think this project started at a time when I had access to a few tools that made it possible uh, to efficiently find new images and to distribute them to a massive audience. So what are those tools? The first one is Wikipedia. Um, we all have access to Wikipedia. It's free, it's a nonprofit. Um, and for finding a new place, this was the primary source for doing it. So say we're looking at the solar concentrator that I showed you before. How would you find one of these places in this vast world? Uh, the idea is a solar thermal station. So you go on Wikipedia, there are lists of these places. And not only are there lists that are sorted by the largest ones in the world, there are coordinates for every single place on there. So you take those coordinates, you put it into the mapping program, and you might find something like this, which is Ivanpah Solar panel facility in the Mojave Desert. So now you've got an image, right? What do you do with an image? I understood at the beginning that we wanted to create a digestible and consistent content stream for daily overview. There is so much going on on a news feed, on social media, that we're all inundated all the time with this stream of images and information. So how can we make it simple? A single post would be the name of what it was, where it was located, the geo-coordinates if you wanted to check it out yourself, and then two or three, maybe even a little more sentences to describe what you're seeing, facts and information, entirely objective, so that you could understand what you were seeing in the frame and learn a bit more about it. Now, we've got a post. Where does it go? How do we get it out there in the world? Instagram. Um, Instagram had, I think, 100 million active users when this project started in 2013. Right now, it's estimated that they have 900 to 950 million active users. That is a large, large audience to potentially share these images with. And why was it so good for Daily Overview? Uh, first and foremost, we all have massive computers with large screens in our pockets right now, so if you're an artist doing photography, that's a good thing, right? You want people to be able to see and enjoy these things. So we've all got these massive screens. Instagram is visual first, uh, so you would lead with the information, I mean, lead with the image, get people's attention, uh, and then follow it up with the information so they could understand what they were seeing. 
we also have unprecedented global connectivity now. An example, we post an image of the Sydney Opera House. Uh, I'm able to go to the geotag of the Sydney Opera House and see every single image that's ever been taken there and posted from someone at the Sydney Opera House. You can then connect with those people on an individual basis and say, we love your image, you should check it out from above. That is incredibly powerful technology that was not around 10 or 15 years ago uh, and has made this whole project possible to get this new perspective out to people who may not receive it otherwise. And the last hack, very simple, tell a very good story. Um, the second week of doing daily overview, I sat on my couch and I wrote a mission statement. That is such a consultant thing to do, but I, I was a consultant at the time, and I figured I needed to define very clearly why I was doing this and why it was important. And it came down to two things. The overview effect, it's what inspired me to start doing this, and this focus on the places where humans were impacting the planet. It was very simple. It was so simple that when people found the project, the story was already written for them. Within two months of starting this, Fast Company wrote this article. And it wasn't just there on their homepage, it was their number one story for an entire week. I'm freaking out in my office, this is crazy. Nothing like this has ever happened to me before. And from Fast Company, it went to the most popular architecture website on the planet, one of the most popular urban planning websites on the planet. British Airways called me and asked to do an interview with me, that was incredibly surreal. Uh, someone in Portugal wrote a story about it, and the largest museum in Munich, Germany, said, we want to do an exhibition with your images. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I think this is telling, though, because I came to the project with this mindset that it was an environmental story, and it would make sense to do a feature with Audubon magazine on encroachment in the Arctic. What I could have never imagined is all of the different directions that it went, say doing an entire story about mining for foreign policy, or working with Four Seasons and other travel organizations to show their destinations from above in a new way. Uh, the images are so powerful and so large that it's led to a number of exhibitions all around the world, like the one in Munich. This is one we did just this past summer in Sweden. Um, getting the images out into a public square rather than behind closed doors of a gallery. Uh, we want them to be accessible and powerful, so printed large and in the public. Getting the images into mainstream culture, these are a series of prints that we sell through CB2, CB2, C, I can't say that, CB2 stores. Um, so it's kind of mainstream art, but again, we still think every opportunity that these images are seen is an opportunity to get this perspective in front of more people. Uh, and lastly, the book, which you may have seen when you walked in here. The book was an opportunity to crystallize our thinking and say, what does human impact look like? Right? Of course, we're gonna inspire the overview effect with these images, but we have the opportunity now to show what our civilization uh, is doing and what it looks like. The talk uh, tonight is called Earth and Civilization in the Macroscope. And the book, better than anywhere else, breaks down earth and civilization into these buckets. Where we harvest is all food and agriculture. Where we extract is all mining. Where we power is all energy, so on and so forth. Um, so tonight, I want to walk through some of my favorite images that tell this story, uh, that show you what is going on right now and what it looks like in an entirely new perspective. So to start, harvest. I showed this image before, but I think it's uh, worth showing again. This is deforestation in Bolivia. What you see on the left is the rainforest that has been cut down and cleared. 
to raise animals and to do mechanized agriculture. So when I see this image, I'm not just thinking about the food, um, but the earth that is sacrificed to get our food. Um, it's a very powerful moment there in the center. You can see that single cut, right? Perhaps a sign of what's to come, or perhaps an opportunity to save it. I think it's very easy to sit in a place like San Francisco and say, save the rainforest, save the rainforest. But when you see an image like this, I think you contemplate that there are people on the ground on the left side of the screen who have families to feed, who are trying to make money. Uh, and there is a country in Bolivia who needs food, right? So you can really think about this for a long time. What is happening? How do we preserve the rainforest and also uh, make sure that people are getting the things they need to live the lives they want? These are canola flowers uh, in Luoping County, China. Um, yes, it is actually that color. Uh, thinking about these beautiful landscapes and also um, the byproducts of the oils that are created from doing it. Palm oil is another one that is uh, particularly detrimental to the environment. Another image also from China. Uh, this shows aquaculture. Um, so these are nets and cages um, used to grow the fish uh, that is being used and consumed on a massive scale. Where we extract. So all of the things that we have have to come from somewhere, right? If you have a dishwasher or a refrigerator that is made of stainless steel, it most likely came from an iron ore mine like this one in the Pilbara region of Australia. 98% um, of the world's iron ore is used to make stainless steel. Uh, so you can see this beautiful and scary scar that creates things we use on an everyday basis. Or diamonds, perhaps some of you are married out there or engaged. It probably came from a mine like this in Botswana. This is the largest diamond mine in the world. Or lithium, we all have lithium ion batteries. This is the world's largest lithium mine in Bolivia. And oil. Oil has to be extracted from the ground. It's old shells. Um, this is oil extraction on land at the Duri field in Indonesia. We also get it from the uh, above, with platforms above water. This is the Manifa oil field in Saudi Arabia, one of the largest in the world. And that oil is then used for energy, where we power. Um, some of that oil might go to this refinery in Ulsan, South Korea. This is the third largest in the world and has a capacity of 1.2 million barrels of oil every single day. Uh, looking at other forms of energy, we have uh, hydroelectric here. This is one of the world's largest dams in China, and also renewable sources of energy like wind. This is the middle Grunden uh, wind farm off the sh uh, coast of Copenhagen, Denmark. Where we live. Uh, we can learn a lot about the places we live when we look at them from the overview perspective. There's a particularly interesting example here. Uh, this is the Bay Area. In the left, you see East Palo Alto. On the right, you see Palo Alto. Uh, when you look at areas and you look at the amount of vegetation and green space that they have, you can gauge their wealth. Uh, this is a particularly interesting example where you can see them both in one frame. But then when you compare images like this one, of the slums of Delhi, India, where green is not detectable whatsoever, to the affluent suburbs of Copenhagen, Denmark, where everyone has their own private growing patch and their own green space and their own huge front yard, um, you have a new understanding of the places that we live. Where we move. 
So we have these amazing cities, and then we create this infrastructure to move under, through, over them. A uh, particularly beautiful example here in the Bay Area is the Golden Gate Bridge, which I will show in every presentation ever for the end of time. Um, uh, or the Kansai Airport, which is constructed uh, as an island in water. It looks like it's floating there like a spaceship. Um, millions and millions of dollars into these infrastructure travel projects. Or these beautiful, massive oil tankers and shipping uh, container ships um, waiting outside the entry to the port of Singapore, um, one of the largest facilities of its kind in the world. Where we design. So we have these cities and we're thinking about how can we create something that's efficient and flexible and also the buildings that we've built to make them architecturally sound. We've been doing this for a while. Um, these are the pyramids in Giza, um, some of the early examples of design on a massive form. Uh, into the modern cities of Europe, like this one of Paris, where you can see the diagonal avenues radiating from the Arc de Triomphe at the upper left, uh, or the canals of Amsterdam, which is a particularly thoughtful and beautiful city when seen from above. And then there's art just on a massive scale for beauty's sake. Uh, this, <laughs> this is a guitar forest with a particularly beautiful story. It was built by a father and his children to honor uh, his wife and their mother who passed. And she always loved guitars and she never had one and they built this in her honor. We also like to have fun, right? It's not all waste and mining, and we enjoy the world and we enjoy our time in it. So we build spaces to enjoy the world. This is Central Park in the midst of our city in New York. Uh, we also do it in natural environments too. This is Aspen Snowmass. You can see the ski trails carved out into the side of the mountain, and also on the natural environment of a coral reef. This is Bora Bora, and you can see the bungalows that hotels and resorts have built out into the perfect blue waters. Now, all of the buckets that I've talked through already, um, they don't really just end there. They're often byproducts or things that come of these systems. So where do we waste, right? You saw those massive ships. When they are decommissioned, they are often sent to a place like this in Bangladesh. This is a shipbreaking yard where people working in horrible conditions use explosions and old tools to scrap the ships for parts. Uh, all of the cities that we live in have a lot of people who are creating a lot of trash. This is a massive landfill in South Korea, um, part of which is filled to capacity. The other part is soon to be filled to capacity. But we have to think uh, about this one statistic that says the wealthier you are, the more trash you generate. Um, that is very much seen in these massive landfills in these major cities. And lastly, the uh, mining uh, efforts that we have all around the world, if they are not handled correctly and if they're not done thoughtfully, they can result in horrible disasters. So in 2015, there was an iron ore mine in Brazil uh, that had a dam containing waste which broke. This is the town of Bento Rodriguez, which was right next to the mine. And when that uh, dam broke, millions of cubic uh, liters of wastewater was released, um, wiping out the entire village, killing 18 people, uh, and this waste uh, flooded all the way into the sea through the Rio Doce River, killing unknowable amounts of plant and animal life along the way. The last chapter, where we are not. Um, there are still places, believe it or not, where humans have not yet impacted the landscape. Um, and when I put together this chapter, it gave me some time to think about this, right? When you look at 
this red lake in Tanzania or the Perito Moreno Glacier in Argentina and Patagonia or this massive desert of sand dunes called the Empty Quarter in Saudi Arabia. You're seeing landscapes which formed over thousands of years, tens of thousands of years, hundreds of thousands, millions of years, deep time, right? And when you compare that amount of time to the development seen in the previous eight chapters, things that we've built in the past five, 10, 20 years, you not only see how much we're doing to the planet, you see how quickly we are doing to it. So this chapter serves as a comparison to show you that the Earth has been around a lot longer than we have, and it will be around a lot longer after we're gone. So that is the book, and I'm thrilled to announce that our current project is turning this book into a children's book um, so that it can be more digestible and understood um, by the next generation of uh, students and lifelong learners who will inherit all of our climate problems. Um, <laughs> so... I want to end with something I mentioned before. Oh. Um, and I didn't tell you the full story before. I was leaving something out. Um, as I said, awe happens when you are exposed to something perceptually vast. I just exposed you guys to a lot of perceptually vast things. And hopefully, your brain had to develop new mental models to understand what it was you were seeing just like the astronauts of Apollo 8 had to do, and everyone who saw this photograph of Earthrise had to do when we saw the Earth like this for the first time. But here's the part I left out. Here's what I'm really excited about. There have been studies in recent years that have examined what happens to people when they experience awe on a regular basis. Studies in the Bay Area, out of Berkeley, out of Stanford, um, and here's what they found. When you experience awe on a regular basis, it leads to an increase in pro-social behaviors, right? You start thinking about ways you can help the collective. Your decision-making changes and becomes more ethical. When you're exposed to awe on a regular basis, it makes you more present, and it makes you feel like you have more time available to you. It's a very powerful tool if you're doing long now thinking. Um, when you feel like you have more time available to you, you're more generous with your time, and you're more likely to volunteer. And lastly, when people experience awe, they report this small self. They are no longer the center of the universe. They recognize that they are tiny, and that feeling of tininess means that they want to work towards the collective. It increases their willingness and their desire to collaborate. So, Everything that I've been doing for the last five years and everything that I intend to do going forward in the future will aim to inspire awe because I believe if I can inspire awe and we can all seek out awe, we will do what's right and what's necessary to create a better future for our one and only home. Thank you. like Stoney Liebrandt says, do you have any interest in ever going to space personally? There I do. Are, okay, say more. Um, 
I don't need to be on the first flight, but if the <laughs> risk is the same as the flight I'm going to take cross country, mm -hmm. I'm there. And uh, you want to be in low Earth orbit and see the kind of stuff you've been seeing? You want to get way the hell out there? What's your preference? Depends on how long it's going to take to get there. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I think I need to go at some point. At, at, this, at this rate, I've dedicated my life to this, and I want to experience it firsthand. I know the images that I'm creating um, don't do it justice to what the astronauts are experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, so I'll go wherever they send me. It occurs to me that you know, the imagery not unlike this is being made of a place where we are not, which is uh, like the surface of Mars. Yeah. Uh, do you ever have a temptation to sort of blend in some Mars and see what people make of it? I've showed it a few times. Have you? Um, Way ahead of me. It should be shown more often. I think um, so having that new frontier, having mm -hmm. a, a next place to go to um, is essential. Mm -hmm. I think it will happen probably in the next five or six years, mm -hmm. um, probably led by the efforts at SpaceX. Mm -hmm. um, so it's great. I think if we continue to look outwards rather than inwards, it will serve us all very well. Do astronomers engage with what you're doing? I mean, there was Carl Sagan going on about, you know, astronomers get their character built by what they're doing. Yeah. Uh, is this of interest to astronomers, or is it uh, a boring planet as far as they're concerned? <laughs> Well, they definitely do like to look outwards more than inwards. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the images do have universal appeal. I mm -hmm. mean, you can critique my artistic composition as much as you want, but the world is vast and beautiful and endless, and um, everyone loves looking out their airplane window, and everyone looks, loves looking at um, the world and seeing it in a new way. So uh, I would hope that everyone could enjoy the images on some level. It's suddenly making me realize not everybody likes looking out the airplane window. <laughs> um, you know, they, they I'm close, biased, I'm they, biased. Yeah, they, they pull the shade down <laughs> and they watch a movie or whatever. But um, also partly looking out the airplane window, one is kind of scuzzy, uh, two is kind of small, <laughs> uh, and you, know, you bang your head against it and it let, you know, and if you're in the aisle seat, you know, you're disturbing whoever you're leaning over to get the view. How about glass-bottom airplanes? Sign me up. I'm, I'm there. If anyone out there can do that, I have business cards afterwards. That would be incredible. It should be directly doable. I mean, you know, there's these things under the ocean. You can see straight through them. Why not? It's probably some FAA regulation where they want us to watch the TVs. And How has the coming of drones affected, uh, which has happened sort of in this period of time you've been yeah. doing this, and... and People are getting these flying cameras now with drones and, and getting used to that image, and they're driving these cameras around. Is that intersecting with what you do at all? Definitely. Um, I have a couple drones myself and definitely go and enjoy that perspective. And you can capture things from drones which you can't capture from satellite. Better, so have you closer. used some of your own drone images in your sequence? On the feed, yeah, every once in a while. Um, I think, yeah, as I said, it's complementary. I think there are things which you can capture from drone um, that you can't capture even from a helicopter, and then going higher up, there are things that we can capture from satellite, which um, uh, photographer, photographers from uh, helicopters can't capture. I, I often get people say, have you heard of Edward Bertinsky or Jan Artus Bertrand, all of these mm -hmm. incredible people who were doing this long before I was. Mm -hmm. um, and I say, yes, absolutely, I've been incredibly inspired by the work that they've done and continue mm -hmm. to do. 
but I think they're complementary. Whereas Edward Bertinsky can get the details of a mine and the people working mm -hmm. in the mine, I have the ability to show that entire mine, mm -hmm. um, which he wouldn't be able to do. So I like to think of them as, as complementary processes and have the utmost respect for the, the work that they've done. Have you ever intersected with Ed Bertinsky? I have not. Okay, he's, he's done uh, actually a very interesting salt talk some years ago and will be coming back when the Anthropocene project that he's been working on is coming to maturity. And he's <laughs> Excellent. Where do you live? I live in Nopa. In where? North of the Panhandle. That's <laughs> what all the kids are saying these days. Interesting. A couple of questions about... Um... <laughs> Kevin Kelly, who's a photographer himself, mostly at low altitude, um, <laughs> is, asks, is there a photograph you wish you could take? Um, I wish it was not so cloudy in Hawaii right now so I could get some of the volcanoes oh, that are up there. But that's, that's what happens sometimes. We, we can have an idea of what we want to show and we can go and look and it can either be disappointing or it's mm -hmm. cloudy or there's not imagery. Mm -hmm. um, it happens kind of more often than I would like. Um, have you gotten many, well you had this uh, basically flood effect, have you gotten other you know, natural phenomena of weather and yeah, cyclones and whatnot? Yeah, uh, we had some incredibly, um, it was almost painful to look at uh, imagery from the Santa Rosa fire uh, last hmm. year. You could see the before and after of a neighborhood that was there and then no longer there. Um, there have been floods, Hurricane Harvey, we had some imagery from Houston which was incredibly um, difficult, again, to look at. Um, there was the crisis in uh, Myanmar, I believe mm -hmm. it was, um, with the possible genocide, and you can see the villages that were destroyed. Um, so this perspective definitely does lend itself to telling those stories in an incredible way. Um, we definitely want to mix up the content on our website so it's not just depression and disaster every mm -hmm. single day. Um, but it is important that we show it, and we definitely want to make it uh, a priority to do so. Well, a question from Liz Bowler sort of speaks to that. What have you wanted to take or show an image of but have been conflicted whether you should? Hmm. Um, do you have these kind of arguments with yourself of, well, this is an amazing image, but I don't know if I should put it out there? Um, I think the conflict is often in how I present it. Uh, I try to do everything in my power. <clears throat> Excuse me. I try to do everything in my power to be as objective as possible. Mm -hmm. um, with the information that corresponds to the image. So sticking Do you always to write the copy that goes with the images? Sorry, what was that? Do you always write the copy that goes with the images? I write it and then I have people check it to make sure that my uh, environmental liberal mm -hmm. bias is not too much injected into it. Um, because we want this to appeal to everyone. If, if we can get um, this post in front of someone who has um, conservative or not typically kind of environmentally favorable views mm -hmm. and they say, wow, it's so beautiful, and they look at an oil refinery for 30 seconds that they otherwise would ignore, that's successful. We don't mm -hmm. necessarily just want to preach to the choir all the time. We want to get this out there to as many people as possible. Are there places, military places or whatever, that imagery is just simply not available? Um, Area 51 is blurred out. Uh, <laughs> Seriously? No, <laughs> I, come on. I, the aliens must have blurred it out. Uh, um, there are, there are uh, war zones. We mm -hmm. don't have access to that. I think they're using that imagery for other purposes, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes you can see that people have selectively blurred out like a port or a company where they probably don't want someone monitoring it. So we try to stay away 
um, from those areas and stay out of trouble and make sure this project keeps going and we don't uh, expose the extraterrestrial life that's at Area 51. But there are increasingly, tell me how many entities are making satellite imagery at this point. Yeah, I, I think it's upwards of maybe 70 or 80 different companies right now. Um, we work with four or five, so we have mm -hmm. access to their archives. Um, but more and more are coming online every day, and those companies are launching more and more satellites. So I think um, we're excited about that. I think mm -hmm. that means the overview effect will become more prominent and more of a thing in the future. Uh, we also think that is going to become more of a thing with space tourism. There's kind of this new space race of billionaires mm -hmm. with Virgin Galactic mm -hmm. and SpaceX. Um, I'm forgetting one right now. Uh, Blue Origin with mm -hmm. Jeff Bezos. Mm -hmm. um, and they all want to get people up there to have this experience. And um, we'd either go along for the ride or help share their story. And I think um, getting that out there more and more is just a good thing. It's more awe-inspiring and it's more powerful. So I gather you spoke here in town at Planet Labs a, a yeah. few days ago. Yeah. Uh, say how their uh, version of space imagery is going to play out. Are you part of that? Yeah, we would love to be. Um, we're mm -hmm. talking with them right now. Mm -hmm. um, they have this incredible capacity because of the number of satellites that they have to image the entire planet every single day mm -hmm. and get full coverage everywhere on the Earth. Each, each new day they can do that. Mm -hmm. um, they also have new higher resolution satellites that, are, wondering about that, that they're bringing online right now. Mm -hmm. um, the reason we haven't worked with them as much in the past is we've been trying to get the most high resolution, high detailed imagery we can possibly find to get people's right. attention. Right. Um, the compromise there is that Digital Globe only has five satellites, mm -hmm. Planet has hundreds now I believe, mm -hmm. um, so you need to kind of find the balance to get the detail um, but also want to have enough satellites that you can capture the image that you want. Well, these things are so powerful where you're running the before and after line across there. And one can imagine sort of running across and running it back across, back across, yeah. back across. And with the daily Planet Labs images, even though they're lower resolution, in a sense, they're higher resolution in time. Definitely. And I wonder if that's something you can conjure with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think as those images in the juxtapose showed, when we do that well, it's perhaps more powerful than just a single image. Um, so we want to do that more and more often. Um, and having more and more satellites up there certainly helps us to do it. Is it easy enough to georectify images so that they are a perfect overlay of these kind of before and after things? And it's possible, and we've also thought about combining, say, a drone image and zooming out and doing it Ooh. emerge into satellite and back down and. Um, yeah, we can just go all day, right? We can mm -hmm. just keep going, so. You mentioned Powers of Ten uh, yeah. as, as the book and then the movie. Uh, what's your thought that you could do with this kind of stuff with the Powers of Ten approach? Yeah. Um, what everyone was not able to see in those images is the ability in which you're able to zoom in. Mm -hmm. um, so the example I showed of the iron ore mine in Australia, um, one of my favorite things to do uh, is to zoom into one of the loader trucks that's working in that mine and you say, mm -hmm. this is 40 feet long, keep mm -hmm. watching it. And you zoom out, and you zoom out, and you zoom out, and you zoom out until you can't even see it anymore. Mm -hmm. um, and having that resolution, having that detail makes it possible to get that sense of scale. Um, and we want to do that in this children's book that we're working on now. Have you tried any of this stuff on kids? Um, <laughs> Sounds like I would need to sign no, some just sort the of agreement images. to do that. Yeah, right, right, right. right. 
My sister is a middle school principal, and she will receive the first draft and then conduct mm -hmm. focus groups on a regular weekly basis <laughs> until publication. So, and a thought, and we talked about this beforehand, that so much of imagery for kids is kind of rough, cartoony, uh, vague, and, and um, big splashes of color and big print and all this kind of stuff. It's like they can't see very well. Yeah. I, <laughs> I assume they can see a lot better than I can. I think so. I would assume so. <laughs> so, you know, do we know how much high-resolution, interesting imagery will play out for kids? Has that been really looked into? That's what I guess we'll need to test in our focus groups that mm -hmm. you and I are going to run with the students. Mm -hmm. um, what is so interesting to me and where this idea came from mm -hmm. is on the book tour for the adult version of the book, mm -hmm. parents kept coming up to me and they said, we love your book, but our kids love it a lot more. And they asked us... What? Yeah, they ask us to read it to them every night before they go to bed. And I was like, I was not writing a bedtime story with mining waste and deforestation. <laughs> but there's something about the images that they, they love. Perhaps it's the abstract nature of them that they need to find out more. It's so fascinating when you show the book to kids. They don't have this kind of civilized adult filter that we all have when we're like, mm, that's a very nice image. Kids are like, wow, that's so cool. They just mm. totally let it all out. Mm -hmm. um, so... I'm excited to see where that project will go. Well, I'm getting a sense that part of what's going on there is is your your short explanation of what you're seeing in the image. Yeah. The kid is asking questions. Wow, that's weird. That's <laughs> crazy. That's wonderful. What's that? Yeah. And then, but you've got this short sort of kid level, kid length. Yeah. Attention span. That's what it is. For sure. Yeah. I think that's part of the. Yeah, deal. I think. All of our intention spans are going down a little bit, so um, the captions were designed to to make it something that you never felt overwhelmed to read. You can always get through three to four sentences. Tell me more about resolution. Why is resolution so intriguing and satisfying? And it, you know, it's a thing that's been coming in photography yeah. for a while, but the the power, especially here, where what is being resolved down at the, the, the pixel level is actually of interest because that's, um, you know, seeing what color of car that is, what brand of car that is, yeah. uh, who's getting into the car. I mean, you know, you're, you're getting detail that is actually interesting in the context of all these other pixels, all yeah. these other details at the same time. Is that what this is about? Is that where the awe is coming from, a kind of an overwhelm of, wow, look at all that data? Yeah, I think underlying kind of all of these stories is just this kind of, um, I don't know if you want to call it lucky, but um, side effect that this technology is being developed for other reasons, probably surveillance. And the government is mm -hmm. um, a major customer of Digital Globes, and they're using these satellites for other purposes. Mm -hmm. um, just like we were going to the moon because of this space race or the mm -hmm. Cold War, and we mm -hmm had this profound awakening and perspective realization because of it, kind of as an offshoot of it. Um, so hopefully I'm using this technology that was certainly not made for art mm -hmm. um, and certainly uh, wasn't created for profound awakening and perspective for that reason. Uh, but I think we need kind of artists and thinkers and storytellers to look at technology in that way mm -hmm. and find these things that we can repurpose for the greater good, for the collective, uh, to tell the stories that are needed. As an artist and photographer, what I see is a lot of rectilinearity. Yeah. So we've got the rectangular 
frame. Yeah. And then often very rectangular human artifacts, which you line them up. Yeah. And, and, and that sort of adds to their power. But it makes me wonder uh, about other formats. Mm -hmm. uh, circular images, oval images. Uh, several people, Steve asks about virtual reality. Andy Lee asks, when will we see a 360 degree live video of Earth and stuff? Yeah. Um, do you think outside the box? <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, we just had our first, I guess you would call it, installation or pop-up event in San Francisco last week, um, mm -hmm. where we're working with this other company called NearMap who has the ability to photograph a city from an airplane uh, from multiple angles at the same time, and then they can put that information back together and create 3D models that you can then kind of fly through and examine the city in augmented reality. Mm -hmm. um, when we showed that, people were pretty awestruck, mm -hmm. um, and that was a good test, and we definitely want to do more of that in the future. Um, so we are definitely, definitely, definitely open to exploring new mediums, um, new forms of technology that come out as long as they inspire awe and people uh, enjoy them. So the installation approach, how does that wind up being different for you than the uh, Instagram daily thing? Yeah, I think um, really with anything, uh, the real world is better than the world through a screen. Um, mm -hmm. And being able to print these images large so that you can mm. see details you would never discover on a small phone screen. Mm -hmm. um, being able to look at them from different angles, if it's augmented reality and three-dimensional, being able to move and interact with the imagery is so powerful. Are you doing three-dimensional stuff? Um, this is augmented reality oh, I slash three-dimensional. Three the lines are blurry <laughs> as to what it is. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the more and more we can get people to um, be in front of these images as if you were in an art museum mm -hmm. um, to make the experience as immersive as possible, to make the images as large as possible, which I think makes them more immersive, um, is what we want to do to inspire the overview effect. So you've got, you do this stuff on Instagram and here comes the comment stream. Um, what, are, what are some of the comments or questions that have come up there that uh, got to you in one way or another. And yeah. by the way, come on with a little more comments <laughs> here, folks. Um, one of my favorite things to see over and over is when I post an image of a city or a place um, and someone who lives there mm. comments and mm. says, oh my God, I live here and I could have never imagined it looked like this. Mm. And for me, that's like, check, we did it, mm -hmm. right? They are operating and moving and thinking small, and this thing popped on their phone, popped up on their phone that day, and they have a new profound understanding of where they are. Um, that happens, I guess, more and more than I can ever imagine. Um, but I, yeah, I, I love when that happens. I've seen something similar <clears throat> when I was hanging out in Indian reservations. I knew this fairly young guy. Navajo Indian who was uh, serving on the tribal council and I asked him how did you come to do that and he said well you know I've lived here a number of years and um, a friend of a friend had an airplane and he, he took me up and I flew over the reservation yeah. and uh, that year I ran for city for the tribal council yeah uh, overview effect gets people I think engaged in sort of responsibility for that scale or something yeah. like that. He was outside of his family, he was outside of the immediate neighborhood he grew yeah. up in. I mean, my opinion now after doing this for five years is you obviously don't need to go to outer space to, mm -hmm. to experience this. Um, 
Again, I don't think the images that I'm creating necessarily equate to an experience of being mm -hmm. in low Earth orbit and seeing the entire planet. I think it's something different, but it is possible to have that awe-inspiring moment, that recognition of, of your smallness um, from any experience. You could get it from going to the Grand Canyon. You could get it from going mm -hmm. to Muir Woods. It can happen anywhere. Um, and it doesn't necessarily matter how you got it. Mm -hmm. um, but if we can get more and more of it, I think it would be uh, a much better world and a, a much better future. Here's a kind of a technical question. When I was an army officer, we were taught to how to analyze um, aerial photographs. Yeah. And uh, one of the interesting rules was uh, maybe run into this shadows stab stomachs. You ever heard that? No. Okay, the deal is, <laughs> it's a great name for something anyway. But the deal is, if you're looking at a aerial photograph, the temptation is to put north to the top. Mm -hmm. But in the northern hemisphere, the uh, sun may well be coming from uh, the, the other, the, from under here. Mm. And when shadows go away from you, everything turns inside out. So uh, canyon walls become ridge walls. Yeah. Mountains become cavities. Craters become mountains. Yeah. Uh, and exactly you've got to turn it around so that the shadows come toward your shadows, stab stomachs, and then it all makes sort of three-dimensional yeah, sense. Absolutely. Have and you run into illusions like definitely. that? Definitely. And we're trying to make the images look kind of as realistic as possible, so you would mm -hmm. want to align it. And it reminds me of a comment that we often see kind of more and more regularly now. People say, I love the image, but it's upside down. And they're saying it's not north-oriented. And I, get, I reply to every single one of those and say, if you really think about it, there is no upside down. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and yet, you showed the so-called Earth rise when yeah. actually it was, uh, you know, it was coming around the limb of the moon. Yeah. And the, the orientation that Anders photographed was they're looking at something that's coming around, yeah. coming around the corner of the moon instead of coming up from the horizon of the yeah. moon because of this convention. Right. Uh, Give the people what they want, right? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the North Orientation is an interesting one, but it is, in space, there really is, uh, North is just one of a great many directions, and you're yeah. going to be tumbling and doing all these various things. Um, when uh, one, of the, the, one of our largest whole Earth catalogs, called the next whole Earth catalog, I needed a kind of a, a good white area behind the title, the next whole Earth catalog in rainbow colors. And uh, that was Antarctica. Yeah. So uh, Antarctica is usually at the bottom. And, yeah, screw it. Uh, <laughs> and Antarctica was on the top. And people like Rusty Schweiker immediately said, oh, I got to upside down, all right. Um, but, That, that, that is a convention that has something to do with wayfinding and with navigation, but in terms of imagery, it's basically meaningless. Right. So you can have the orientation, uh, should, the orientation should be whatever works for the imagery and the clarity of understanding yeah. what's there. Absolutely. Or the, the, just the sheer impact of it. So do you start with north is up or do you just not give a damn? Um, I think because I've always approached it from this artistic angle, hmm. um, I usually start just by spinning it and just keep spinning it until it feels right. Mm -hmm. um, and then I make precise refinements to get, as you said, the mm -hmm. lines lined up or whatever mm -hmm. is best. Mm -hmm. um, there's also a lot of thought that goes into 
how you crop it, what you I decide to show. Yeah. Um, again, the photography I was doing was just on my own, but I think through that process I learned the most important part of a photograph mm -hmm. is not in the middle, but it's the edges. Right. And if you can control the edges, mm -hmm. um, you can determine where people will look first and what they're going to look at. So it's more important to crop out um, the unnecessary stuff than to mm -hmm. um, show the important stuff. And do you have a standard aspect ratio, 16 by 9 or something like that, or do you make um, the aspect ratio what the image wants? It's interesting you say that. Uh, a few years ago, Instagram made it possible to show hmm. images as large as a phone. Mm -hmm. um, so for the book, the images are custom cropped for the exact page they're on to get as much space as possible. Um, but when you're looking at your phone, you're looking at a vertically oriented rectangle. So we want to mimic that space to, to take up as much uh, of the screen as possible to give you as much of the image as possible. Um, so we're kind of reacting to the format where we're presenting the images. Lou Cusack asks, any thoughts about producing a film? I mean, you were inspired by that overview film. Definitely. Um, one thing I often say is what's missing from our stories is the perspective on the ground. Mm -hmm. um, and I often think how powerful it would be to accompany um, our images with uh, the perspective on the ground. Say someone who works in one of those mines or one of those shipbreaking facilities or mm. the people who are living on the left side of that deforestation image. Um, I think it would be especially powerful if they're at the same time. Yeah. There's, there's lots of amazing, Sebastian Salgado and others have made yeah. amazing imagery of the shipbreaking in Pakistan from the surface. Yeah. Uh, but they're in black and white, and they're you know, some other year or even decade from the images that you're Absolutely. working with. So we, my guess, it would be strongest if there's a sort of sense of simultaneity. Yeah. This is... Uh, what's going on on the ground, and at the same time, this is what it looks yeah. like from... Our images were used recently in the One Strange Rock episode series. That's what's on that? Nat Geo right now. It's a uh -huh. Darren Aronofsky um, creation. What um, is it? I think we would want to do it ourselves in the yeah, future, like, but uh, yeah, right. it's nice to see that they can be used uh, in that format. How will imagery photographed by the James Webb Telescope, which will tell us more about the long view of the beginning of the universe as we know and influence the, how will that affect things? Does any of the looking out imagery um, come back to the looking in imagery, do you think? Yeah. Um, I would love to kind of explore that at some point in the future. Mm -hmm. uh, I've thought Daily Outlook might be a good name for that <gasps> project. Um, please don't take that domain because I haven't locked it down yet. Um, <laughs> please. Um, but uh, yeah, of course. I mean, that's when people really um, start to think about deep time and the creation of the universe. Mm -hmm. I think it's more accessible right now what we're doing and some of that imagery is viewed as kind of like space stuff and it's not for everyone. Um, obviously, I do not agree with that as the founder of a space club at my old firm. Um, <laughs> But I think it is incredibly powerful and something that we would love to tap into in the future. Um, that telescope has huge potential if they can get it launched. I know it's a little behind schedule right now mm -hmm. um, and a bit over budget, but fingers crossed they get it up and, and going and start capturing these incredible scenes. We've had several um, astronomer types and others uh, talk about um, basically Carl Sagan's uh, point at the beginning that this is the only place in the universe yeah. which is very large, uh, that we know of that has life. And you've been, as he has, part of the awe effect of sort of studying life on Earth from this kind of perspective, 
must raise the question for you, is there life elsewhere? Where do, yeah. you, come, where do you fall on that? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, yes, there is life elsewhere. I just think once you start to read and understand how big the universe is, um, you'd be a bit selfish or self-centered to think that just in this tiny, 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 tiny corner of the planet, of, of the, the vastness of the cosmos, I should mm -hmm. say, the planet is there, um, is the only place. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever find other life, but my belief is that there is life elsewhere. What do you think this century is going to bring? Uh, something I think about a lot in terms of climate, all kinds of stuff. But what do you think this century is going to bring in terms of, um, well, the overview effect? What, yeah. what else is coming? Yeah, um, I've mentioned a few of the things already. I think space tourism, as it's known, will make mm -hmm. space travel and this new space race more of a thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think those efforts are fundamentally being led by the, uh, SpaceX. Mm -hmm. They are making reusable rockets, which is a game changer. Mm -hmm. um, until now, uh, launches have been conducted by launching and then just crashing the, mm -hmm. the rockets into the ocean. Um, it's now more affordable when you land them. Mm -hmm. um, that means there will be more satellites in outer space. That means it's more, it's going to be more likely that we'll be able to send people to outer space, potentially to Mars, which I know Elon Musk wants to do. Mm -hmm. um, it also means that there are more and more satellites uh, going up all the time. Uh, there have been some incredible geostationary satellites launched. Um, I showed the image from Discover that was mm -hmm. in 2015. If you go on the NASA website, you can get an image every 20 minutes of the Earth from that satellite. Mm -hmm. uh, Himawari 8 is a Japanese weather satellite that takes a picture of the planet every 12 minutes. Hmm. Um, there is new, profound... And that's geostationary as well? Yeah. Well, well, well. Um, geostationary means uh, that it's focused on one particular place on the planet. It's at the distance, again, I'm not an astrophysicist, it's at a distance where it can stay there and it's kind of in between the Earth and the Sun mm -hmm. and is focused on one place at one time. Um, so there will be more and more of that. I hope there is new understanding that comes from it, not only about the weather, but about the climate. Um, and hopefully, kind of just as I was trying to do with Space Club, it gets people interested in space mm -hmm. again. Um, I wasn't around for the 1960s, but from what I understand and what I've read, it was the thing. Astronauts were heroes and mm -hmm. going to new places um, was the future. And I think that can come back. And if that comes back, uh, things will be good. So uh, our patron, Jeff Bezos, is very interested in uh, getting space colonies going. Yeah. Uh, which is interesting, because um, this goes back to Jerry O'Neill, the physicist Gerard O'Neill's thought that is the surface of a planet really the best place for an advanced industrial civilization? Yeah. Um, but from the overview effect, it's interesting, because uh, you know, it would be one of the L1, L2, L3, L4, L5 places that the, is a likely place to, to have early space colonies, yeah. which will have this perspective on Earth. They will be seeing the Earth and Moon and Sun yeah. doing their dance, and they will be part of the dance in yeah. a way. Uh, and presumably, a lot of it will be turned inward because you're protecting against cosmic rays and all sorts of stuff, letting in enough sun that the sun actually works. But presumably, there will also be a whole viewing aspect uh, to it. Yeah. Do you have any well, feeling about that? How about space colonies? I, I know uh, Jeff Bezos is definitely 
a huge proponent of the viewing mm -hmm. aspect. Mm -hmm. uh, Blue Origin is advertising that they have the largest windows in space right now. Um, and they have the measurements listed in their mm -hmm. ticket brochures to, to go on one mm -hmm. of their flights. Um, so the overview effect and viewing the Earth is definitely a major um, component of that experience for them. Um, I, I, I hope it's part of it. Inevitably, when people go to these space stations, they're going to be looking out the window. Uh, a lot of the astronauts who have spent time on the International Space Station complain that they don't have enough time for Earth gazing, as they call it. They've got to do all these other things and experiments, and they just want to look out the window most of the time. So an interesting thing happened with the space station. There was, there was kind of a, a pity and contempt that was growing for the space station after it been up there a few years, and they'd yeah. done a few energy experiments, and people are saying, what, you know, what's this all about? Yeah. And then they put in that bay window yeah. and started doing uh, you know, uh, videos of, the, you, know, you saw some of it here, of the you know, Earth scrolling by and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Once they put that big window in, the, the, the sign bit on the space station flipped from minus to plus, and yeah. suddenly everybody's interested <laughs> in it, and the astronauts are carrying on, they want to hang out by the window. Yeah. Do you think that's just, just that? It's just the visual? I, I hope so. I, even more than that, the astronauts who've had an opportunity to do spacewalks um, say it is the most incredible thing. Um, when you don't have the windows in front of you. I guess it's similar to mm -hmm. you not looking, uh, not enjoying the, the window seat on an airplane because the window's too small. Mm -hmm. Once they get out there mm -hmm. and they can see everything, they're like, this is it. This is what it's all about. Mike Massimino writes about that in his new book, um, saying it was the most profound, incredible thing he's ever experienced. Well, it's a good argument for the person who's suggesting a virtual reality version of all this. I think that's coming, yeah. So last question, what's, uh, what's coming for you, what do you plan to do, and what do you really, really want to do? Yeah, I think we've covered a lot of it. Um, again, working on the children's book right now, you mentioned mm -hmm. the film. Mm -hmm. um, but underlying everything that I'm doing now, um, everything that I intend to do in the future, I'm probably going to stop before I do anything and ask myself the question, will this inspire the overview effect? Will this inspire awe? And am I doing something that presents people with an opportunity to learn and enjoy and appreciate the planet. And if I can do that, uh, I think the project will be a success. Doing pretty well so far. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. You can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.